Hello, everyone, and welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 138, and we're reviewing Tokyo Revengers Christmas Showdown. As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode. It's kind of like Christmas in July, although it's not July. Christmas but it's getting in close. May. In May. <laughs> I know, it's weird. If they had just released this, like, what, a season or two earlier, then it would have been great timing because it would have been right around the Christmas season. Yeah, whatever episode was titled Christmas Eve, they could have released uh, on Christ or the on the week of Christmas, and it would have been serendipitous. It would have been a great way to <laughs> celebrate the holiday season in anime form. But here we are. To clarify, though, it did air starting in January, so I guess just after the Christmas season. Um, but we're only reviewing it now because we put this one on hold as with, you know, with all the baby stuff happening, we figured we need a little more time to catch up to this show. But what was weird is during the time between like when it was airing and then when we're actually kind of catching up and reviewing it, I haven't heard much talk about the season. So I was going into mm -hmm. it kind of nervous thinking, did it suck? Was it really bad? Did Tokyo Avengers fall off or something? Yeah. I mean, it came and went without any fanfare although i do remember i think around the time that we were in japan that was when the manga had wrapped up and i know that the the manga readers weren't too happy about how the story played out and i don't know if that's maybe what contributed to like less buzz about this season because it's like why bother watching the show if the if the story is not going to play out the way that manga readers or fans would like it to play out um but yeah it's like regardless of that it was just weird because season one it feels like everyone like tokyo avengers took the community by storm especially because like at conventions there are so many cosplayers especially those who are wearing the dragon fit ourselves included and i think even for our podcast uh, one of the parts for our season one review was one of our most listened to podcast episodes for that year. Uh, so yeah, I was also just wary that something went wrong this season and that's why no one really talked about it, but we'll see if that's the case when we discuss the season. Yeah, I saw some of the tweets as well, um, I guess around the time that the manga ended saying like Tokyo Avengers fell off, disappointment, blah, blah, blah. But I figure the anime community would have been riding the high of Tokyo Avengers enough to be diving into season two. Um, but yeah, I just I didn't hear much of it. So I didn't know what to expect. Um, but I will share my thoughts in just a little bit. Uh, I do want to kind of transition to something related. I think it ties in nicely to this episode. And it's actually an email that we got from one of our listeners, Justin L, who talks a little bit about the self-doubting protagonist, which of course Takemichi is. So I think this, this is some interesting food for thought and I want to read out their email. So the email says, congrats on the baby. Thank you so Thank much. You. <laughs> um, also, Shonen protagonist being the same or similar is the point of Shonen. You guys can't relate with characters like Naruto and Deku, but I and a lot of other people do and grew up with them. Yes, that doesn't necessarily make great characters, but you guys have to know that that media like Naruto and My Hero Academia's main demographic is for kids and teenagers. Not every media sets out to be great, but a lot are about being relatable and ideology. That's why it became the biggest anime at one point. I look at Naruto and My Hero Academia as anime equivalent of superheroes. 
Is it the best piece of fiction? No, or not necessarily, but something a lot of people can relate and want to be, can relate to and want to be. So I think this is a very valid point. And like I said, some good food for thought. Like I, I do sometimes need to be reminded that the demographic of a particular show may not be my demographic or may not be my fandom. So I may not always connect with it. Um, I think being the age that I am, I watch a ton of shonen, but sort of still wish in the back of my head that there was more of a mature influence. Not anything like sexual, of course, but a more mature influence that I can relate to, which there are often characters who are older in those shows, usually like the mentor character, or the teacher, or, you know, the big brother or sister or something. Um, but yeah, sometimes I forget that shows like My Hero Academia and Demon Slayer may not be targeted for somebody like myself. Yeah, I know that I've beaten down on the self-doubting protagonist trope many times on this podcast, but I, I too understand that like the shonen genre obviously it's it's very successful because the demographic that reads or watches that content really relate to these characters because they're in in a place where they're not sure of themselves and that's what that that adolescent teenage demographic uh, can also connect with uh so again <laughs> i think just just the traits of the trope again. I, I know I was in that same place when I was growing up. And so me being uh, in, in my 30s now, I know I can't relate to that as much. But, you know, I, I can see why this genre is so successful. Uh, at the same time, I, I, I also see Justin's point about, uh, like, these shonen protagonists being, like, the different superheroes um, in Western media. And I think that's a great analogy um, because yeah, there are so many different superheroes with different traits and or with different abilities and such. But there's a reason why we always love to watch every single iteration of them. Um, but I think for myself, just looking at it as as an adult now, um, I like to see more variety in the shonen protagonist, especially like with Tanjiro in season one of Demon Slayer, how different he felt in his journey to become a part of the Demon Slayer Corps. Or even, I think, Hunter Hunter, Gon Freaks, is a great example of how he kind of breaks that shonen protagonist mold where he's not always just self-doubting himself, but he has a little bit more confidence, which I think is a an excellent characteristic for any shonen fan, especially that of a, a young young adult, a young teenager to, to follow. Uh, but, yeah, this was great food for thought to... <laughs> To make me think about how much I should treasure the self-doubting shonen protagonist trope. Because, yeah, there is some meaning behind it besides just being <laughs> a crybaby like Takemichi or something. Well, I think there's still something to be said about that. So it's kind of like, you know, we can find shows like Gintama or Wotakoi relatable because they're about an adult cast or they star an adult main character. Um but maybe we relate less nowadays with shonen protagonists because of where we're at. But we also grew up with shonen protagonists. Right. I mean, one of the first, I guess you could say, shonen protagonists that I grew up with was uh, Ash Ketchum. But of course, 
you know, that's a little bit different. Pokemon doesn't have the kind of character development that you might expect from other shows. But I mean, that was still kind of cool to watch as a young kid, a 10 year old going off and exploring the world and catching Pokemon. Like, of course, that's going to be really exciting. Um, So my big however to this point that Justin brings up is that I know that we lump all of the self-doubting protagonists together, but I will say there are differences kind of like what you were alluding to. Like they, they are all adolescent and they are all made to be relatable at that age. Um, when you're experiencing new things that can be frustrating or confusing when you're going through these life lessons. But like you said, that you have ones like Tanjiro, where in the beginning, he was definitely self-doubting. He was a crybaby. But over the course of Demon Slayer, we have seen him learn and grow through these experiences. He still cries a lot, but much of that is crying because of loss, losing people mm-hmm. he cares about um, or you know, showing compassion toward the demons he kills. That's that's the difference there between him and somebody like Midoriya, where he has been so stagnant the whole show till like, I don't know, maybe the last arc of season six, like he kind of showed some, some growth there. And it's frustrating for me because I'm like, damn, dude, you literally got everything you wanted. A quirk. All Might is your mentor. You got into UA. You're doing hero stuff in your first year of school, but he just keeps going around in a big cycle instead of making progress and learning and growing. Arguably, Bakugo has had way more character development than than Midoriya has. If you know me, you know I'm a Bakugo uh, simp. I, I'll I'll save my my lecture for another day. But um, I think what I'm trying to get at is, while I agree the demographic for shonen is adolescent viewers who are still learning and growing themselves, the key word is growing. There's the viewers themselves are going to eventually learn and grow and mature. So we want characters that are relatable but they're going to be relatable because those characters are also learning and growing and maturing. Um, I've never seen Naruto, but I assume or at least hope that Naruto as a character uh, learns and grows over the hundreds of episodes of that show. If not, that's kind of disappointing, but it is what it is. And I think the tie-in here is with Takemichi. I think season one, Takemichi was kind of stagnant. He was was annoying. (laughs) Yeah, he was a crybaby. He kept doubting himself like from beginning to end. But I will say season two... Still a crybaby, even though he's a 26-year-old guy, um, you know, internally. But I think in season two, we actually got a lot more confidence from him. I agree. He's <laughs> he's a little more tolerable in season two, but I definitely see an, an improvement, the development of him over seasons one and two. So I would almost take Takemichi out of the Midoriya type of shonen protagonist category and put him into the Tanjiro type of crying, you know, crybaby shonen protagonist character. We're seeing that growth and it's great. I hope this keeps up. I know there's probably not a lot left of Tokyo Revengers, which we'll talk about in a little bit, Um, but it is nice to see Takemichi actually show confidence and show determination and say, I need to do this myself versus like, what am I going to do? I need help from somebody else. So I think that's where we get a little stuck um, when it comes to those shonen protagonists is, you know, are they actually going to show character development? I think regardless of, um, so Justin brings brings up another good point that not all these shows are trying to be the best show ever made, but something with anime that I think differentiates it from a lot of the shows you see like on Nickelodeon and stuff like that, um, or Cartoon Network, is that anime typically does have a very deep-rooted story that progresses over time. So you would hope that the characters also progress over time. With, of course, differences like Pokemon, you're not going to see a bunch of like overarching plot lines and character Mm -hmm. development, but Demon Slayer you are, uh, My Hero Academia Academia you are, Naruto you probably do, 
and Tokyo Avengers, you do. But all in all, Justin, thank you so much for your email. I think that, again, it was really, um, really good food for thought. It was a great point, and it's a good reminder for us that every show that we watch, we need to be mindful about who it's actually targeting, whether it's a shonen, whether it's a rom-com, whether it's uh, a horror show, whatever. There's a different de- demographic that it's made for. Yeah, it was definitely an eye-opening message. And, you know, it's always great to get feedback like this, um, whether it's praiseworthy or whether it's trying to debate one of our points, which that's that's just great because, you know, we're not experts in anime. Um, there are always different opinions, and we welcome those with open arms so that we too can kind of just grow in developing our, our love and our knowledge of anime. So, yeah, keep these kinds of things coming. They're great. Yeah, thank you for, for reaching out. And I think with all that said, though, will we still make fun of the crybaby shonen protagonist? Yes, yes we will. <laughs> but do we still love them? Yeah, like I still love right. Midoriya as a character. Don't get me wrong. Like he's not a bad character by any means. But, you know, sometimes we do need to to get it off our chest. Yeah, and I love Tanjiro. And, you know, even Aaron Yeager, he was like that in seasons one and two of Attack on Titan. That's a good point. I forgot about that. But yeah, now he's become one of my favorite shonen protagonists. So... Yeah, as much as we we beat down on them, crying and just constantly putting themselves down, they are still great characters in the end. So with the tie-in to Takemichi and his growth in this season, um, and also what I was mentioning earlier about not knowing what to expect with season two of Tokyo Avengers, I have to say all in all, I was very pleased with all of those points. I was pleased with Takemichi as a character and the way he was growing in this season, and I was kind of pleased with the way the season panned out in general. Is it better than season one? I would say no. Is it kind of close? I would say yes. I don't know. Did you feel pretty satisfied watching the season? Yeah, at first I was nervous, like you said, because there was basically no buzz about this season. But as we started watching it, it it became a really intriguing story. I would say this is almost like a side quest compared to how season one story was almost like a main mission. I mean, it's still related to Takamichi trying to reshape Toman's future, but instead of it focusing on the founding members, this one kind of just focuses on on a lo- lower priority member of Toman and his family drama. And I'm sure you know Dom Toretto from the Fast and Furious series would love this season because it's basically all about family and this compelling story with the, the Sheba family that's thrown into the mix of Toman's future. And of course, we have to rely on Takemichi to sort of delicately navigate the chain of events to turn out in his favor. Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, I was like so worried this was going to suck. But I, I have to say there were a lot of really interesting plot plot twists and also a lot of great tie-in from season one. Like we got these breadcrumbs of things that were building this mystery around like what was going on in the past and how Takemichi can change the future. And we got a lot of closure in this season um, or a lot of ties, tie-ins this season. So it was kind of, it was satisfying in that regard as well. Um, And I think at this point, there's probably only going to be what, one more season left? Yeah. That was the other thing is I was surprised that this was just a 13 episode season because I think Season one had 25 episodes, but I think they purposely did that to make the third season encompass, which I think is supposed to be the two final arcs for the series. 
Um, so like I said, this almost has that side quest feel in that sense. With season two, I felt like we got less cameos of Toman's established founding members, but you know that's of course in favor of the new characters and giving a spotlight to other Toman members like Chifuyu or Mitsuya, which I think was a slight letdown because you know Mikey and Dragon are such great characters that it was kind of sad just to see them on the sidelines for now. But as you mentioned, I think the biggest takeaway that I took from this season is the fact that Takemichi has finally revealed his time-traveling powers to another person besides Naoto. So how much that sort of changes the game and what this means when it comes to how Takemichi rebuilds the past moving forward. I would also say the pacing was really good this season. I remember there were points of the first season where I was like, holy shit, this is dragging on forever. Specifically the Draken arc in the second half, I think, leading up to the big other showdown. Halloween, was it like Halloween Rumble? Something like that, yeah, Halloween something. Um, that like felt like an eternity. Um, but the pacing in this season was really great. I think 13 episodes was just the right amount for the season. Um, I think that it was a smart choice to stop it there and then maybe give a third season to the remainder of the show. And I was also worried going into it that the animation would have some hiccups the way this, the first season did. Because I don't know if you recall, but during that same Halloween showdown or whatever it was. Um, oh, sorry. It's Bloody Halloween. Bloody Halloween. That's what yeah. it's called. Yeah. There you go. Um, during Bloody Halloween, there were some really shitty animation moments. And a lot of the fans, uh, especially the Japanese fans, were tweeting and stuff about how disappointing it was. So I was worried about that. I will say the first episode had some janky animation, so I got super nervous. But overall, I think the animation was pretty good, especially um, I think as the season ramped up. So maybe they just saved some of the budget um, or some of the resources from the first episode for later in the, the season. But yeah, once I got past the first episode, I was like, okay, sigh of relief. The animation looks pretty damn decent. I will say the animation is not stellar. And it's still Leiden Films who's doing the production for season two. Um, all I will say is that it was at least consistent. Uh, things didn't look drastically different from what they did in season one. There weren't really any moments where I was like, oh, this anime, uh, besides the episode, uh, first episode, where there weren't any moments where I was like, oh, this looks really strange. Uh, I, I guess like the, the church scenes uh, added a little bit of pop to an otherwise like really dull colored world of Tokyo Revengers. But yeah, animation wise, I think everything was what it should be. <laughs> and of course, moving from animation to music, and that's in terms of the OP and ED, to talk about the OP first, we have the song White Noise by none other than official Hige Dandism. I was so excited when I saw that they came back for Tokyo Revengers. I love Hige Dan. I've become a big fan of, of theirs. And yeah, the song is really good. Is it as good as the first season's song? Um, no, I would say not. But it's still a really solid song. And I would say visuals-wise, like, it's it's good. Like it feels like a Tokyo Avengers opening. I still think the first season OP had better visuals um, that paired up with the song uh, really nicely. But this one was still pretty solid. Yeah, I'm also glad that Higidan came back for this one. I joke with Courtney that if you listen to a majority of Higidan's music, uh, a lot of them 
or like some of them have a very similar rhythm and feel to it. I know you like to sing their other songs on top of other songs that are playing. And I'm like, damn, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Maybe I should compile all the songs that I think sound similar. Uh, All the Higedon songs that sound similar. But I will say this one has a completely different vibe. Again, not as much as a not as much of a banger as the season one OP, but I like the feel of it for this season, uh, especially the, the the strings that kind of go erratic in the background. I just love that part. I don't yeah, know I why. do too. It's, it's really good. <laughs> it almost kind of fits the like the motorcycles and stuff, and just like yeah. cruising through the city. It gives that really like fun nighttime cruise to kind of feel. Right, and I think that's also expressed in the visuals where there's shots of Takamichi with Chifuyu riding through the night. Uh, And yeah, in terms of visuals, you have a lot of character shots, just like with the first OP, Takamichi kind of front and center with that. And then you have the members of Toman and also the members of Black Dragon being featured. Um, I think other interesting visuals were showing the young Takamichi in his hero cape kind of signifying that crybaby, the crybaby hero aspect of the character. And I didn't realize this as we were watching the OP in the beginning, but towards the end of the OP, you see a glimpse of the future Mikey. Because um, it's kind of, he's kind of, his face is kind of censored, I guess, where you, you don't see it fully. So I thought at first, well, is this like a future Takemichi? But then you see that... Uh, dragon tattoo on the neck so it's left very ambiguous um but i like that kind of mystery behind that visual until you see the later episodes of this season um lyrics wise it's a song largely about what i believe is takemichi's resolve to save toman and to save hina but i think most especially to save mikey from himself that's set to these motorbike metaphors like driving straight to look for the whereabouts of the taillights that disappeared, almost like you know Takemichi is trying to find a way to reconnect with Mikey um, in the future as he's seeing his psyche kind of develop or, or change, whether for the better or for the worse um, in this season. Uh, and then another lyric like, before the regret chasing after me blocks my sight, I'll save you over and over again, kind of alluding to Takemichi's mission of trying to save as many people as he can. And then you have the ED, which is Kitsu. Oh, I'm going to butcher this. Kizutsukedo Aisteru, which translates to It Might Be Painful, But I Still Love It by the artist Tuyu. Didn't really focus on this ED. Um, it's one that I guess focuses on Yuzuha running through a gritty urban sprawl. Again, you have the characters from the Black Dragon Gang and from Toman, as well as a lot of stills from the previous season. Uh, I guess overall the song and the visuals for this are okay. Lyrics-wise, I think it could be sung from the point of view of many characters in the season. Of course, Yuzuha or Hakai or Takamichi, where it's talking about protecting what you care for despite all odds. Like the important things that I wanted to protect, whether I'm suffering or I'm weak, for me staying still is not an option. So the song is good. I just don't think it fits the show's vibe. And I don't know, something about the song, I, I shouldn't, I'm not trying to bash it because I can't sing for shit. I don't sing. But when she hits some of those like really high notes, it just kind of sounds like a lot to me. 
Um, but yeah, I think the song just doesn't fit the vibe. I know that maybe it fits like Yuzuha's vibe, but not the vibe of the show overall. Um, so I just thought it was okay. Even the visuals were just kind of like okay. Although I did notice that when they show all of the characters, all the key characters from the season, they also show their names at one point. And oh, that right. to me is always a sign that you just have too many damn characters in your show. I think the the classic case of this is My Hero Academia, where mm -hmm. they're at a point now where there's so many fucking characters and heroes that every episode, every episode, they have to show the name and like superpower of that character. And I'm like, we already know this, but also the fact that you're showing us this means that you recognize there are too many characters. And this is one of my gripes about season one of Tokyo Avengers is that there were new characters being introduced. I felt like every five episodes and I'm like, who are all these people? Who is this? Who is that? So it kind of felt the same way in this season where I'm like, shit, we have more new characters, but the, the story of season two was so contained to just these characters that it felt a little more manageable than what we got in season one. Yeah, I was about to say, I think they toned down the introduction of new characters with season two because you're really only limited to, let's see, one, two, three, four, five new characters from the Black Dragon side. Whereas Yotoman, yeah, season one introduced so many characters, some of which make an appearance in this season, especially the one voiced by Daisuke Ono, like those secondary characters who are like top members of Toman, I still don't know their names. But at least in this case, I remember Taiju, I remember Hakai, Yuzuha, even Koko and Inui. Uh, so that's all you need for this season, which is great. Like you don't need all of these characters to kind of get their fill in the story. Just focus on the ones that actually, that actually matter. All right, Strictly fam. Tis the season to be brawly, so make sure to bundle up as we dive into our synopsis and discussion for Tokyo Revengers Season 2, the 2023 anime adaptation of a manga series written and illustrated by Ken Wakui. Produced by Leiden Films, the second season follows crybaby hero Takemichi as his young delinquent self continues to reshape his future and the future of the Tokyo Manji gang, but this time by settling a delicate family drama during the season of Christmas. In episode 1, it is what it is. After its explosive Code Geass level season 1 finale, Takemichi once again returns in the Revengers after being saved from Kisaki's bullet bill by an unlikely source, Kazutora. Turns out the former foe was in a secret scheme to save Kappa Mikey and Toman from its current vengeful self, and that in this timeline, it was Takemichi himself who approved Hina's isekai to the great beyond under Kisaki's orders. Swearing to retcon everything that happened in Season 1, Takemichi vows to continue fighting for Hina's future by shifting focus on the biker gang who helped get Toman's hands dirty, Black Dragon, not to be confused with Red Dragon, and not to be confused with the SS Minnow Johnson. So my first notes from episode one uh, is exactly what I was mentioning earlier. It says, okay, so animation looks way better than the first season. Let's hope they keep it up. And the second line of my notes say, okay, I spoke too soon. Some of the shots are kind of bad and some of the animation is stilted. But thankfully, again, that, I think it was just an issue with episode one. I think the rest of it looked good. And I was very pleased to see that they picked up right where season one had ended. That's always nice. We didn't miss anything in between. Although it was kind of an unfortunate shot of Takemichi in front of Kisaki, where 
It almost looked like he was, you know, giving him a blowjob. Yeah. yeah. Giving, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just like there was immediate closure with what happened with that gunshot. Uh, but I, I thought it was surprising that it was Kazutora who ended up saving Takemichi, especially because he was built up as the antagonist in the second half of last season. Yeah, I agree. Like, what the fuck is up with that? Why is Kazutora the one showing up? And also, that doesn't get addressed at all this season. I would hope at some point in the next season that Kazutora's whole situation gets flushed out. But, like, was that supposed to be some sort of mini redemption arc for him? Um, Like, I'm not convinced that Kazutora has changed and is all, like, this good person now after he repeatedly betrayed them and acted kind of psychotic in the past. Was it because Mikey had forgiven him at the end of last season that that kind of stuck with him and made him realize like why he was part of Toman in the first place? And then seeing where they were at that point in the future, he knew that he wanted to bring back the old gang to what it the, like the former glory that it used to have. Yeah, I think I think you're right. That's probably what triggered the change in Kazutora, but. Am I still convinced? Not necessarily. Because again, he was acting fucking psychotic when the whole situation with uh, Mikey's brother went down. He immediately just starts blaming Mikey. Like that that seems a little unhinged in my mind. So I don't know. I feel like there's there's some wild card aspect to Kazutora that is still there. Um, when he was also telling Takemichi about Mikey like purging the old members, my first thought was like, oh, he must be lying because doesn't Kazutora have this like long-lasting grudge against Mikey? But turns out he was correct, we'll, which we'll talk about towards the, uh, the end of the season. One note I wrote in this episode is, why is it that Kisaki always has Hina killed in any timeline? And is it because he has an obsession with Takemichi, who he calls his hero, which I don't think is really addressed in this season. Like, no. There's that flashback, of course, where Hina connects her story with uh, Kisaki and both of their stories get connected with Takemichi's through a, a childhood event. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I still don't think they've addressed like what the relation is between Takemichi and Kisaki that we haven't seen yet. Maybe that's what's going to be explored in the third season but i think that's a lingering question that i will continue to have my two theories um one was exactly what you explained that maybe he's getting getting he's using hina as a way to get at takemichi my other theory is that um hina may be somebody that kisaki fell in love with because if they knew each other back in the day and i'm going i'm skipping ahead but that Mm. episode where they show kisaki and hina as kids kisaki was obviously like an outcast but hina was you know the pretty girl who didn't care about that and would still talk to him and usually the trope in anime is that that causes the um the guy or the the outcast character to like the other character because they show them kindness uh so my guess is maybe kisaki likes hina and is mad at takemichi for taking hina i don't know those are my theories if he can't have her then no one can basically (laughs) (laughs) in episode two Gotta go, gotta go fast. Takemichi gets blasted back to his delinquent past and unexpectedly becomes bowling buddies with Toman Vice Captain Hawkeye, who conveniently is the younger brother of Black Dragon's big baddie, Taiju the Kaiju. With the crybaby captain encroaching on dragon turf, Taiju tasks his cowardly kinship with being character number X of God knows how many to deliver a beatdown on Takemichi. 
because that's all that really happens in this show. It's so nice to see Hina. I said before, I think in maybe season one review, um, that the show seemed to start to forget about her and her relationship with Takemichi, which to me was like so important and interesting and a key motivation, obviously, for the story. So I think we got a lot more Hina content in this season. I think I think the Hina content started to fall off in the last half of season one when they focused a lot on Draken. But here we're getting way more Hina, which is great. That's true. Although I think it still kind of fell off towards the end of this season as the story focused more on Mikey and his well-being. Uh, but yeah, we get plenty of content for Hina here, especially with the the I think it's called the Christmas Showdown this time around instead like Bloody Halloween and now it's the Christmas Showdown uh, with the introduction of Hakai I think this was interesting because you know Takemichi thinks that oh, Hakai is this terrible character who is going to bring about the downfall of Toman but I think this is another thing in Tokyo Revengers where you see the you get the unexpected of certain members of Toman where it turns out that Hakai is actually a pretty decent guy, although he may be a lot stronger than Takemichi, as evidenced through their their competition in bowling and at the arcade. Um, yeah, he's 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 still an overall great guy, and it's kind of like what Takemichi thought originally of Mikey and Draken, that they were also like these violent characters, but finds out that deep down they're really good at heart. And so you have the switch over to Taiju, and that's what sets everything in motion. It also is a good reminder that time and life experiences can really shape a person because when Takemichi jumps back to the future, like you said, Hawkeye seems like a totally different person, probably because he's been through so much shit that he's no longer the same kid he was or the same person he was um, when Takemichi first met him. Same thing with like Draken. Draken seems like fucking depressed and he's in jail and all this stuff. Um, Mikey has gone apeshit and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So I think what's interesting here is that everyone says that Takemichi remains the same from the past and the future and that he's the the reminder to everyone of what they had in the past and how mm -hmm. good things were in the past before they let life and their experiences change everything for them. Another reminder that I always get as I watch Tokyo Avengers at like random moments is how young they're supposed to be, even though that doesn't make any fucking sense. So you're telling me this Taiju guy who leads the Black Dragons is only 16? The yeah, dude is built God. like a brick shithouse. <laughs> like, what the hell? He looks like he's 40. I just don't understand. Like, all of this would be, I think, so much more believable if they were in college or older. It's just because, right. like, there's so much violence and they're, like, riding their motorcycles through the city and they basically behave like adults. It's just they're in the bodies of 16-year-olds, 16 high schoolers and junior I mean, high schoolers, it, it basically. Is, it is Takemichi in well, the Well, Takemichi's <laughs> the actual situation of that. <laughs> but everyone else acts like they're adults um, when they're clearly not. Especially because Taiju is voiced by one of your favorite VAs, Tomokazu Sugita. Yeah. Who, of course, sounds like an older gentleman. <laughs> He's got a very low voice. Right. Um, and this also reminds you of the live-action Tokyo Revengers movie, where all the characters are, of course, played by these adult actors. And so it takes the believability out if these are supposed to be middle schoolers. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, it is, it is what it is. Uh, one other thing I'll comment on with 
Hawkeye is I think with this season only being 13 episodes and a lot of the exposition for Hawkeye kind of being contained in this episode, it's weird that he immediately just becomes friends with Takemichi um, and then kind of uses that as the basis for why uh, Taiju, like he doesn't want uh, Taiju to beat him up. You know what I mean? Like this guy that you just met, you're treating him like a, a lifelong friend. It, it kind of just felt like they, they wanted to rush to this part to establish the story rather than build up the relationship between Takemichi and Hawkeye in a couple more episodes. Yeah, but we only have 13 episodes right. to, to go through all of this. So I think for pacing's sake, I think it's acceptable the way that they came together. But you're right. Like, I think it is a bit rushed. In episode three, standalone, instead of falling for the tireless Tokyo Revengers trope, Hawkeye refuses to beat Takemichi to a pulp and agrees to leave Toman and join Taiju the Kaiju in Black Dragon. Takemichi is so distraught about the way this season is playing out that he spills the beans about the entire premise of Tokyo Revengers to his vice captain, Chifuyu, who comes to believe his bizarre adventure. The duo then come up with a half-assed plan to keep Hawkeye from submitting his Toman pink slip, but turns out that Mitsuya already beat them to the punch with his own street punk performance evaluation. Episode 3, as well as a couple of other episodes, are the reason why I was surprisingly um, satisfied with this season. This is a really good episode, and not only because of the fart. The fart was awesome, though. <laughs> when oh, Takemichi part. wakes up in his room, and one of the friends is like, what are you doing? And then, like, just rips ass. <laughs> that was great to me. Because they're kids. Yeah. <laughs> they're supposed to be kids. Exactly. They're adolescents in a shonen. Um, but, yeah, I think that this episode gave us a lot um, of great content. So, like, Hina, first of all, is a real one. She's trying to protect Takemichi from, you know, the the woman beating Taiju. But thankfully, Takemichi protected her in return from getting her shit rocked like uh, Yuzuha did. And that, that's, again, a sign of Takemichi's growth that even though he's got a really tough girlfriend, he's not willing to have her be hurt in any way, shape, or form. Um, but then it turns out that... I don't know if this was how it was supposed to play out in the original timeline, but it turns out that Takemichi was indirectly responsible for Hawkeye leaving uh, Toman, the exact situation he wanted to prevent because all of this happened simply because Takemichi was there, simply because another member of Toman was brought to Black Dragon Turf, right? Like their home or whatever mm -hmm. that led to Hawkeye needing to give up his place in Toma. And so I found that to be super interesting because Takemichi is working so hard to change things, not realizing that he may actually be pushing things further in the same direction. Oh, I didn't even pick up on that. I just remember that, I don't think we talked about this with episode one, that Takemichi was in a way directly responsible for Hina's death by giving the order. Uh, but yeah, it's why like Takemichi is always just in here. He, in this case, he's just there, and then that's what happens to cause the whole chain of events. Um, so, you know, as much as, I guess, Takemichi hasn't changed as a character throughout his 12 years from the past to the present, I feel like in this case, he is trying to change himself by t being more proactive with a situation rather than standing around doing nothing. Yeah, when he wakes up after getting his ass kicked by Taiju, um, when he's in his bedroom and everyone's there, he wakes up and the first thing he thinks to himself is like, 
I have this resolve to fix this situation by myself, which is a huge change over season one Takemichi, who would have just cried about the situation and say, what am I going to do? Nothing changed. I wasn't able to change a thing. Oh my God, I need help or whatever. Here he's like, no, I have to change the situation and I have to do it by myself to not get anyone else involved and not put anyone else in harm's way. So that was a huge breath of fresh air when it comes to Takemichi's character development. And then he goes and tells Chifuyu his secret. That <laughs> so was he's crazy. not alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of all the people, I thought he would have told Mikey. But yeah, he tells Chifuyu, which I guess works because Chifuyu is going to die anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, I like how Chifuyu is playing a more prominent role in this season, uh, especially because in the finale for season one, it's implied that he and Takamichi have been like, almost lifelong partners in a sense and you don't you don't really get to see that of course in season one but this episode is where it gets established that they are partners in this together especially because i think yeah chifuyu is supposed to serve as takemichi's vice captain and what is it i think they're the first yeah first division uh, but what a what a secret to confide in someone saying that i'm from the future and they're just supposed to take that at face value but like Chifuyu accepts it and believes it just because I think even he, even though he's a member of this gang, he also is a good person at heart and sees the heart of gold that Takamichi has as well. Yeah, Takamichi is super lucky that Chifuyu believed him. Chifuyu had every reason to not believe him. If it were anyone else, they probably would not have believed Takamichi, but Chifuyu uh, trusted him with all of this. And it, I think that explains why... Chifuyu calls Takemichi partner right before Kisaki shoots him in the head. Mm-hmm. So there, there's some there's some context there, some kind of like tying up those loose loose threads that you know these little breadcrumbs that were dropped in season one that we didn't quite understand. But I I think the key thing to note with this episode is twice Takemichi is not able to change anything he's setting out with this resolve to fix everything in the future but actually changes nothing so you had the first situation that i explained with hawkeye leaving toman when they're confronting taiju the other situation is that by the end of this episode um hawkeye does end up staying in toman but not because of anything that takamichi does Mm -hmm. it's because of mitsuya so it's interesting to see that not everything can be influenced by Takemichi and he can't change everything. That sometimes things just need to play out the way they need to play out in order for the path towards the future to be set in motion, if that makes sense. It's like a <laughs> a preset cutscene in a video game that you have no control over until you get back control (laughs) and even takamichi tried to change things by giving mikey the snack or whatever and um, trying to follow chifuyu's advice or whatever but even then it still changed nothing so i kind of like that that it's not always going to go takamichi's way or not every situation is going to be influenced by takamichi like fate will still sort of guide things the way it needs to one last note I have for this episode is what the fuck happened to Draken's voice? Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> I mean, it's always weird when a voice actor changes, especially for like a, a key character. And we know the drama behind Draken's original voice actor, mm-hmm. but it's weird. It's always going to be weird. Yeah, so the former VA for Draken was Tatsuhisa Suzuki. Uh, the new VA is Masaya Fukunishi. Uh, I think he's just a little more aggressive and raspy in his tone and his delivery, but it just doesn't match up, in my opinion, to 
the way that dragon looks and the way that the character carries himself it i think it's almost like that thing of an older person stuck in a younger person's body but this time it it really doesn't make sense in episode four family bonds Mitsuya ends up doing a Pokemon trade with Taiju the Kaiju, wherein Hawkeye's resignation from Toman is in exchange for their sister Yuzuha's protection. Takemichi, however, presses X to doubt, and he and Chifuyu try to rally Toman to see past the facade and take down Black Dragon, but the best they can get is Kisaki and Hanma. The unlikely team learn through the way-too-willing Black Dragon informant Coco Loco that Taiju will be AFK and buy his lonesome in a church on Christmas Eve. Because what better time to dole out a couple of sucker punches than during the season of giving. So as things unravel, things are making more sense. Hawkeye apparently kills Taiju in the past to protect his sister. Um, and I think that is why Kazutora was explaining that like Hawkeye killed the former leader um, for money or whatever. Like Obviously, people aren't going to know the truth behind that that murder. But that explains it. It's just weird to think that that murder happened in the past, like as they when they were in junior high and high school versus like in the future. Because when Kasutora explained it to Takamichi, I figured, oh, in the future, he kills Taiju mm. and takes over Black Dragon. But no, it happened like way in the past. And these are middle schoolers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's also really sad seeing how terrified Hawkeye is of, of his brother, despite Hawkeye being pretty strong and tough. I think it's an accurate portrayal of how some people do react to their abusers. So as frustrating as it is sometimes to watch Hawkeye chicken out of situations or be too afraid to be involved in situations, I again think it is somewhat accurate um, from what I've you know heard and, and read and, and what I've absorbed is that like that that is how some people can react to their abusers. There's so much fear instilled in them um, by those individuals that no matter the situation, no matter who's got their back, they simply can't break out of that. They can't muster the courage to stand up to those individuals. So I, I think that that is a common thing for Hawkeye throughout the season. But I do have comments when we get to like the end of that arc and how Hawkeye changes. I was surprised how dark the story of the Shiva family went in that regard. I think it made it more compelling to watch the story, but it also made it a, a little bit more realistic compared to a lot of stories in anime, like stories that hit a little closer to home. Uh, but, I, you know, I'm glad that in this episode, there's flashbacks of a young Hakai visiting or meeting a young Mitsuya who instills the trait of using his strength to protect people uh, and th that's a mantra that, you know, as as difficult as it is for Hawkeye, like you said, to to face his older brother, he knows that this is something that he must learn to embrace if he does want to protect his sister, uh, Yuzuha. I was blown away by Kisaki and Tenma teaming up with Takemichi and Chifuyu. I did not see that coming. And I've said in season one that I like Kisaki as a villain because he's such a mystery like, even though he plays this, like, key role in the timeline of things, we know so little about him. But here he seems genuine about wanting to help his fellow Toman members out. Did he? Yeah. It's like <laughs> and so, red flag. I, I think that it's 
I was kind of hoping that like he was genuine and then like something happens that like changes it and like something something happens where it all goes wrong right and, like starts his spiral towards the future but nah he was just evil from the beginning <laughs> it, it was all just instilled in him and he was just tricking them but I still thought it was interesting that he wanted to team up with them I think another interesting thing for a character in this episode is it's revealed that Taiju is a devoted Christian which I think is very unique, especially in Japanese society, because Christians only make up a very small percentage of the population. Yeah, last I had heard, which that was a long time ago, it could be inaccurate now, but like 2% of the population is Christian, Catholic, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I was hoping that this season and learning more about Taiju, it would expand upon, like, it would expand upon his Christian beliefs and how that would sort of play into his twisted way of raising uh, Yuzuha and Hakai, but that didn't really play out. So that was a bit of a, a letdown. Uh, you know, like everything here takes place in a, in a church, or like this Christmas showdown takes place in a church, and Taiju constantly brings up like how God, like later on he'll bring up like how God is challenging him with all of these events. And I just wanted to learn about the how and the why of that, but Again, that's never really expounded upon. In episode 5, Christmas Eve, after the tumultuous team-up agrees to carry out their Black Dragon takedown in secret, Takemichi spends quality time with the Tachibana family. In one case, learning that Hina used to chum it up with Kisaki, and in another case, learning that Hina's father wants them to banana split because of Takemichi's thug life. And thus, the crybaby captain acquiesces, giving Hina the Christmas gift of teenage heartbreak and in return receiving a jingle bell of a beatdown before embarking on Operation Not-So-Silent Night. So happy. More relationship development between Hina and Takemichi. Again, I thought the show was beginning to forget about her, but they focus a decent amount on the two of them throughout the season. Because with all of the people dying in Tokyo Avengers, to me, none of them are as important as Hina. There's something so special about how driven Takemichi is to save Hina, even though they haven't been together for many, many years. And seeing the ways that she dies, I mean, nothing hit harder in the first season than when she got pinned in that car. And then oh, Takemichi yeah. tried to save her, but it just wasn't it, w it wasn't going to happen like that was brutal that was so rough and like him crying and saying i love you i'm gonna f i'm gonna figure out a way to fix all of this like that was great so yeah i'm sad when other people die in this show and takamichi like you know really wants to try to save them but nothing is more important to me than rescuing hina so seeing this episode was really satisfying um the plot twist with hina knowing kisaki that's interesting i hope that comes into play because we were talking earlier about like why does hina keep dying first <laughs> by kisaki's hand <laughs> yeah. uh or maybe maybe not by his hand but like through his influence uh so i i want to know more about that All right and just to comment a little bit more i think i might have said this in our previous tokyo revenger reviews but like hina represents like she's a symbol of purity and innocence in this show in the midst of all of these juvenile delinquents and gang members. So, of course, she is the she should be the sole reason why Takemichi wants to change the future is to save save someone who was not so connected to this violent world and make sure that they have the chance to live out a good life. Uh, even though, yeah, in this case, <laughs> with the flashback learning that 
she had a connection with Kisaki makes for a very interesting case. I also like that we get a callback to season one, like one of the future timelines where Hina brings Takemichi to that park and says, like, this is where you broke up with me. And so I was surprised that this season already brings that moment full circle by showing us the heartbreak. I thought we would have gotten this maybe a, a season or two later, but I think just based on how fast the series is drawing to a conclusion, I guess it makes sense here. It's just weird that Takemichi wouldn't be upfront about what Hina's father said to him, like tell Hina, like, this is why I have to break up with you. Instead of, uh, he just says, oh, I, I don't like you anymore. Well, I think the reason is because if he did tell Hina, Hina wouldn't accept the breakup. She'd be like, well, no, that's just my dad saying that. We don't actually have to break up. Like, don't he doesn't know what he's saying. But he Takemichi needed her to accept the breakup in order to protect her. And I think that, like, that lie was the only way to get her to believe it. But we see this, <laughs> you know, we recently watched The Amazing Spider-Man because it's on Disney Plus now. And I feel like there's a similar scene between Peter and Gwen Stacy in that movie where he just breaks up with her. He, of course, he's protecting her, but he won't tell her why. And so that just leaves these two characters in a world of doubt. And I don't know. I just, I, I get what you mean. Like, it's better for them not to know because in the end, you're still protecting them. But I think clarity might have helped a little bit in helping them understand a little bit more. I did find it interesting that even up to this point, the end of episode five, Takemichi still hasn't changed anything. At least hasn't really changed anything because he still breaks up with Hina the same as was the original timeline. Um, so yeah, it's it's almost halfway through the season and we haven't seen like a, a key change that Takemichi has achieved. That'll eventually change, but um, it just kind of goes with that theme that not everything is within Takemichi's control. But also... Takemichi gets his ass kicked by everyone now, including his own girlfriend. That was weird. Like, I know it was kind of out of character for Hina to like go yeah. ape shit on him and beat him up. Like that was that was not what I was expecting. Although you you made a point before that you know Hina's always ready to put up a fight, and True. so I guess this is <laughs> this is the case where she can put that in action. In episode six, whip up morale. Takemichi enters the Church of Hard Knocks to stop Hawkeye from stabbing Taiju the Kaiju, though to no one's surprise, Kisaki and Hanma betray the crybaby captain and Jifuyu and throw Yuzuha into the mix to turn it into a winter blunderland. Takemichi then realizes that it was Yuzuha who killed Taiju in the original timeline for Kisaki to use Hawkeye as his lapdog, but there are bigger beasts to bruise at the moment with Taiju accepting some form of cruel divine punishment to lay the fatal smackdown on his sister. Okay, well, there it is. Kisaki did betray them after all, and I guess shame on them for believing him so easily. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but hey, he's an interesting villain still, and I want to see where, where he goes in this show. Um, there's also been a lot of plot twists up until this point, but thankfully they've all been relevant and interesting. Sometimes having too many plot twists too quickly can really be a detriment to a show or to a story because then it just feels exhausting and it just feels like you're doing these things to, to keep interest levels high versus actually de developing a, a good story but i would say these plot twists um have been 
relevant enough where I feel like it's okay. And this this plot twist for this episode is that it was actually Yuzuha that killed Taiju in the original timeline. And so Hawkeye was just trying to cover up for her. Yeah, I think they, they established that later. So I, I enjoy that the plot twist kind of builds upon itself as you learn more of the truth behind this event of Taiju getting murdered. Uh, again, this is where Taiju questions why God would put him through the ordeal of having to kill his sister. Uh, brings up an interesting point about his faith, but that's not really addressed, even in a lot of the flashbacks that show the Shiba family. In episode 7, Sibling Rivalry, before the Shiba siblings spiral out of control, here comes Mitsuya Watsutuya showing how a big brother is really supposed to act, aka getting beaten to a pulp whilst being firm in his convictions. Taiju the Kaiju's lackeys, Koko Loko and Inui Gui, enter the fray for the Christmas brawladay, but with Hawkeye still pulling a Courage the Cowardly Dog, Takamichi decides, fuck it, and vows to take over Black Dragon from Taiju with all his non-existent might. That awkward conversation that Toman was having mid-fight was just so anime tropey to the mm -hmm. point where the one character, Coco, in the background, like softly saying, how long do we have to wait for them? <laughs> yeah. was so great. Like It was definitely the anime poking fun at itself for using that trope and for the yeah. trope existing in the first place. Very meta. And then you have Hawkeye chickening out and not helping Mitsuya, which... I think it's pretty honest. As I mentioned earlier, this is a lot of trauma that Hawkeye has, built up trauma for, for years and years. And it's going to take a lot more than just a brief bit of encouragement from Mitsuya to get Hawkeye to break out of that mold and to summon the courage to attack his brother. So I thought it was a smart choice to have Hawkeye not help Mitsuya in that moment. Yeah, I want to know here that half of these episodes is Hawkeye just standing there. But, you know, after our previous discussion it, it does make sense it takes a lot more than a character just saying snap out of it to actually be spurred into action because if you think about it with yuzuha i mean she's also been subjected to this abuse for years and years and years right but here we see her acting a little more brave and a little more independently than hawkeye because yuzuha has somebody she's fighting for which is hawkeye mm -hmm. if hawkeye felt that same way with yuzuha versus you know, cowering behind her, he may be able to break out of that mold a little bit more easily because he's thinking, I have to do this for my sister because he's so used to his sister protecting him. He's got nothing that's ex at stake for him. So he's too scared in this moment. But speaking of Yuzuha, why is she still in her school uniform? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> is that like her own gang uniform? I mean, it has like sort of gang colors. I guess so. <laughs> but yeah, it's just... It's Christmas, wouldn't you want to just wear your normal getup? But that's besides the point. In episode eight, Strive Together, Takemichi rallies Hawkeye to be a man. We must be swift as a coursing river. But the scar-faced Shiba reveals a secret as mysterious as the dark side of the moon. That Yuzuha ended up taking their big brother's beatings because he was too much of a chicken shit to defend her. The turns have tabled now, though, with Hawkeye entering the ring although that's as effective as bringing a knife to a church fight. But you better watch out and you better not cry because Mikey-kun is coming to town. So the whole time they're having this ongoing pep talk for Hawkeye 
and the black dragons are just standing there again awkwardly waiting for the second episode in a row my mind is like couldn't they just have run away through the front door the front door is right behind them why don't they just fucking book it there's only three of them at this point on mm-hmm. the black dragon side but then as i wrote that i wrote that note at the beginning of the episode and as the episode went on i i realized oh it's because all of black dragon is right outside well there you go <laughs> But a church has many exits. You could go through the back. <laughs> it looks like a tiny church. I don't know. Maybe there's uh, there's only one. But, you know, fire safety codes in Japan, do they need more exits? I don't know. Either way, uh, my question was answered pretty quickly. So I think it's here where Hakai finally comes to. And it's by listening to Takemichi's words. And maybe this is the point where Takemichi does step in and make a difference in the turn of events. Because, you know, Hakai's saying, like, he can't change anything, but Takemichi has proven time and again, although Hakai doesn't know this, that he's been able to influence the past. And despite him having absolutely no strength, no power, he still fights on and bears the burden because he knows that he is protecting those that he loves, which I think is something that Mitsuya also reinforces later by saying, we're all weak, but that's why we've got friends, which seems to me to be like an unofficial mantra for the Toman gang. Uh, so, you know, as much as we said, like, it doesn't take like one per- one character saying snap out of it to spur them into action. I think that's kind of what happens in in this sense with Hakai throwing himself into the ring. Yes, although it could be a combination of like Mitsuya's words and Yuzu getting beat up and everyone else getting mm-hmm. beat up and then finally yeah. Takemichi is like not giving up even though he sucks at fighting. <laughs> Maybe that was just the straw that broke the camel's back and, and snapped Hawkeye out of his fear. One other thing that I loved about this episode is the climax where all you hear is the sound of a motorbike and it's supposed to be like a, like a death knell for the black dragons because it's signaling that mike is on his way um i know it seems like they just let him waltz in a tr- into the church which gets explained in a later episode but it was kind of like man mikey is really op huh and just hearing that motorbike sound it reminds me of spongebob where it's the, the four four string ostinato in d minor and every sailor knows that it means <laughs> death uh but yeah, I just love that they build up Mikey's arrival so much just with a simple sound. It's just, <laughs> that was just great. I love that. Before we move on to the next episode, I completely forgot. If anyone's interested in hearing our review on season one of Tokyo Adventures, it's in two parts. Um, it's episode 41 and then episode 53 of Strictly Anime. In episode nine, Dawning of a New Era, Takemichi fears that Kappa Mikey-kun may snap due to his grief-stricken state, but the Toman leader proves he is quite literally headstrong and kicks the Christmas spirit out of Taiju the Kaiju. He further demoralizes the Black Dragon leader by using the Draken cheat code to annihilate his gang members waiting outside the church, bringing Operation Not-So-Silent Night to a close and allowing a chance for Hakai and Yuzuha to tell their brother to move, bitch, get out the way. Afterwards, Kappa Mikey-kun takes Takemichi on quite the sleigh ride that leads him back to confront Hina and her holiday heartbreak. I don't know, man. It seems way too convenient that Mikey makes quick work of Taiju. It kind of discounts 
how tough Taiju is and how he used that strength to create an army of what is now like the Black Dragons. I'm kind of, I have like mixed feelings about this because I love it because it shows and proves that Mikey is the top dog. He is the strongest without even trying. He's a natural born fighter. Actually, he's more like a natural born kicker. <laughs> just kicks yeah. everybody. And that's fantastic. I love that part of Mikey's character. But again, it, it just makes everything up until this point feel stupid and pointless because you could have just had Mikey there the whole time and no one would have gotten beat up. It would have just been Mikey taking out Taiju in two seconds. And then there's Draken, who apparently single-handedly steamrolled through a hundred black dragons. I don't know, man. And then on top of all of that, they're suddenly like, yay, guys, we did it. We defeated Black Dragon. And I'm sitting here thinking, no, Mikey and Draken defeated Black Dragon. <laughs> yeah. You guys are about to die until they showed up. So, yeah, I have mixed feelings about how this all played out. I also have mixed feelings about how strong they portray Mikey and Draken. Like, it makes sense, but it doesn't at the same time. Especially because this episode, or this season is called the Christmas Showdown arc. There's not much of a showdown, or we're not privy to it because... Obviously, we don't see Draken beating all these 100 gang members outside the church. Uh, the thing with Mikey, I this felt like a callback to when Kazutoro was beating him with that metal pipe during Bloody Halloween, and then Mikey just managed to get up again. Yeah, it shows that you know Mikey can't be fucked with, but I, yeah, this also just makes Mikey look way too much like an anime character, like an anime an character. OP character. Right. Um, so kind of odd that they use Mikey and Dragon as a sort of cop-out to close out uh, the Christmas showdown. But, you know, it is what it is. It, it gets us to the end of this and somehow gets everything resolved. But, yeah, it, it, I think this was just a little too muddled for my liking. And then it ends with Hawkeye and Yuzuha having some heartfelt moment with Taiju. And Hawkeye says, we're not going to submit to you anymore. But in my mind, I'm like, what really has changed for Taiju other than him not leading Black Dragon anymore? Like, this family still lives together without any parental supervision. And Taiju is still overpowered compared to them. What's stopping Taiju from just continuing to be an abuser at home? I don't really know. Like, right. what are you going to have Mikey live at your house to make sure that Taiju stays in check? I'm just not convinced that this one thing completely overhauled Taiju, which we'll get to that, I guess, when in the next episode when they have like their talk or whatever, Taiju and Yuzuha. Um, there is some change we see in Taiju, but it just felt like this whole resolution to this whole showdown, I don't know, like wrapped up too quickly and too neatly. Right. Too conveniently. It wrapped up too quickly and too conveniently. I think that's what bothers me about it. Yeah, I was thinking if, you know, Hawkeye finally standing up to Taiju would have stuck in Taiju's mind, but you know, he was still wailing on him during the the Christmas showdown. And so him realizing that at this point I don't know if that would really have made a difference. Although Hawkeye just does mention to Taiju that this is the first time you've lost something. And I don't know, maybe that's where Taiju starts to realize it's not about his physicality that gives him a sense of power um, and just kind of reevaluating what it means to be an older sibling. Uh, but yeah, this moment was left very unclear, like how Taiju grows out of this. I know in a later episode, I think the next one, he says that he plans to leave 
uh, like go somewhere else um, to be away from Yuzuha and Hakai, probably to allow them to kind of heal from the wounds that he's created. But yeah, I still I'm I'm I still can't fathom or put together what Taiju has actually learned. In episode ten, the light of my life, though Takemichi breaks up, Hina makes up. And Mikey wakes up to the fact that the crybaby captain is more like his older brother than Mikey could ever be. Mitsuya too has a reflective moment on how much he admires Draken, but all those sentiments are whisked away in order for the top toe man to ring in the new year. And hopefully, new future. So Emma and Mikey are real ones, helping Hina and Takemichi get back together. However... As happy as I am and as nice as that scene was, it was so short-lived. Like, this whole thing has been lingering since last season where, again, future Hina tells Takemichi he broke up with her and then it's resolved as quickly as it started. So, I don't know. It just, like, it shows, I guess, Takemichi is willing to do literally whatever it takes to save Hina, even not be with her. But, I don't know, I just felt like there needed to be a little more emphasis on this. Like, this is a big deal. Um, I'm glad they're back together, but it just, I don't know. It felt like, again... It was cleaned up too conveniently. It just ended too conveniently the same way the showdown did. Maybe we just have to think of it in terms of them as middle schoolers, as teenagers, that this is just a small bump in the road. And so, you know, Hina's just glad to be back together again with Takemichi. Like, they don't understand, obviously, the long-term implications of what this event means, but it's just more so in that moment um it's just like a okay we'll make up and let's go celebrate new year's together you know what i mean yeah all in all though this kind of just played like a cool down episode because not much really happens besides them attending the new year celebration or was it hatsumode and then the the brief flashback that showed Draki, <laughs> Draki, Draki. <laughs> combining Draken and Mitsuya, uh, Draken and Mitsuya's relationship, which like kind of just dropped out of nowhere. Um, but you know, I think this gives context to why they're called, I think, the twin dragons of Toman. Toman, which we didn't, did we know that until this episode? Not really. They might have m- briefly mentioned it at some point in season one. Uh, but also just showing that the the concept or the reason that Dragon has his uh, neck tattoo, which I guess apparently uh, Mitsuyo also has, but is covered up by his purple hair. And yeah, I think this is the episode where Taiju just decides to leave the Shiba family just like that. You know, it's not like he just beat them down the, the day before, but whatever, he's out of the picture whether or not he really learned anything, but at least they're out of harm's way. Yeah, he says that he realizes violence isn't the answer for everything, but he won't mend his ways. And it's like, again, what is stopping him from continuing this cycle? What has really changed for him other than he's not the leader of the Black Dragons? Like, he's still an asshole. (laughs) And he could have still stayed at home and still continued to be a shitty brother, but at least he's out of the picture now. He's on a sabbatical, I guess. (laughs) So good for him. In episode 11, On My Way Home, at Toman's annual board of directors meeting, Kappa Mikey-kun debriefs on Operation Not-So-Silent Night, announces the acquisition of the Black Dragon Gang, and in an unprecedented move, kicks Kisaki out of their lobby, causing Hanma and their Mobius-slash-Valhalla factions to follow suit. 
However, Mikey still manages to keep his longtime investor Takemichi happy with a motorbike crafted by his brother using parts from the land of the Jollibee. Feeling content with this game save and commemorating it with an in-game screenshot, Takemichi returns to the present, only to find that Mitsuya has become one with the excessive force. So I'm starting to think that fate wants someone to die. If not Hina, then Akun, or Draken, or Baji. I mean, Baji did die, but, um, or Chifuyu, or Mitsuya. Like, it just, it's a lot. Like, hopefully this pattern doesn't last forever in Tokyo Revengers, because it seems to be somewhat repetitive like Takemichi tries to change the past it creates a different future where everybody starts dying then he changes the past again it creates an even worse future where everyone keeps dying um but apparently this is the the worst outcome so far and I think I think it's it's understandable at this point because apparently we're in the final arc now of the story Mm -hmm. so yeah you would expect it to be the worst outcome yet but a couple things that this episode establishes uh, I think this is a full circle moment where Black Dragon gets absorbed into Takemichi's first division because I think Takemichi initially said that he was going to take over Black Dragon. Which he didn't. Mikey did. <laughs> yeah. He, <laughs> he just happens to now have them under his division. Yeah, he was just the catalyst to let that moment happen. Um, obviously, the biggest thing is Mikey kicking Kisaki out of Tokyo Manji, um, which makes for stronger implications of how the future plays out later um it's just interesting that you know kisaki tries to convince mikey to let him stay on but then mikey says that kisaki's rash assumptions will screw up his dream that makes me question what is mikey's dream exactly is it still to establish that new era of hoodlums or is that dream being corrupted by him seeing his founding members fall one by one and that leads to his mental state of disarray where he no longer sees that as a dream and is just consumed by the darkness that starts to fester inside him another small moment that i loved is with talking or yeah with takemichi getting gifted the motorbike by mikey and dragon they say it's because they ruined something precious for takemichi i think this goes back to season one where Mikey and Draken are in a fight and they start throwing (laughs) Takemichi's stuff all over the place. And I think it includes like Mikey's or Takemichi's bicycle. Yeah. And is that the, that's the poo episode, right? Where he has poo on his head. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Which is another thing. Like we talked about how Hina just made up with Takemichi like nothing happened. If you remember then, Mikey and Draken made up like nothing happened either just because they saw the poo on his head. Yeah. (laughs) So again, it's just... It's just, I think this is establishing like middle schoolers being middle schoolers, although in this case, they are able to ride motorbikes and know how to ride them properly. And murder each other. Right. In episode 12, Last Order, Takemichi learns that this is quite possibly the worst game save as all founding members of Toman have been Yamchud with Kappa Mikey-kun as the prime suspect. A decoded letter to the crybaby captain leads him and Naoto to the land of the Jollibee, where a despondent Mikey awaits to have Takemichi permanently delete his game save. Takemichi's firm refusal results in Naoto delivering the killing blow instead, and just when he thinks he's out of the time-traveling game, they pull him back in. 
So, okay, Naoto says that his memories were overridden and that's how he knew Takemichi returned. Interesting. I know in the first season during our review, we had a lot of questions around like, how does this all work? Because they haven't really given us much about it. There was that one moment where Naoto was kind of explaining to Takemichi how the timelines work. Like he goes back to the same date, but you know, however many years ago. 12 years ago. And he can't go back any further. Um, but they haven't really explained anything else about this which is fine like maybe they don't need to maybe it just it is what it is and and that's all we need to know about it but they always kind of drop these other hints about like how it all actually plays out and hearing him say my memories were overwritten that's how i knew you returned is interesting because i always wondered i'm like how does naoto know when he comes back except for like seeing his body wake up him mm-hmm. being takamichi um and how, like, does Naoto retain memories from past timelines, blah, blah, blah. So I think this is confirming he does retain memories from past timelines, but he just has a new set of memories on top of that every time Takemichi returns from the past. That just makes me think, I, I think I saw this in another show, maybe another cartoon, like if his environment just suddenly changes and transitions, you know, and that's just, that's where he's like, oh, the, the past changed. What if he's like shitting on the toilet and then suddenly the environment changes and he's like out in the, like, a, <laughs> like a forest or something? <laughs> yeah, like Takemichi moves one rock and then that causes the destruction of Tokyo or something. Yeah, and it makes me think like if it weren't for Takemichi intentionally returning, Naoto's memories would constantly change. Like that butterfly effect as you're kind of alluding to. Takemichi is doing d- things differently and that could drastically change the future constantly at every single moment. Mm-hmm. But no, it's it's only when he comes back from the past that that's when the the change in the future is triggered. Which is kind of scary if you think about it because obviously Naoto sends Takemichi back, but there's no way for him to let him know, wait, don't do this, mm-hmm. right? Like Takemichi's just left in the dark and out to figure it out on his own. Um, I think that would have saved for a lot of headache if they had this sort of communication, but obviously that doesn't make for a really interesting story when you find out in the future that Again, this is the worst timeline out of all the millions of timelines that they could have witnessed. It also just makes me wonder, like, what if Takemichi just says, fuck it, and says, Hina, don't go near any any cars because they're going to crush you and you're going to die. Because she keeps dying via car accident. <laughs> um, like, just don't ever be near any cars ever during this time frame. Uh, like, she, he already told Chifuyu, and I haven't seen a key difference except for that moment where Chifuyu tells Mikey, you know, whatever, like, about Takemichi, like, his eyes are still the same or whatever. Um, so I wonder how that would all pan out. Obviously, it'll probably never go down that road. It's just, you know, me speculating. And speaking of Mikey, um, okay, so he did kill everybody. I mean, he's mm-hmm. invincible, so. Cold-blooded. <laughs> uh, I know the, the Philippines thing was pretty exciting for us because we're both <laughs> Filipino. Philippines and anime. Please. Yeah, <laughs> but I kind of felt like it wasn't really anything. Like, they didn't need to go to the Philippines. Like, he just went there to talk to Mikey but couldn't he have just gone to any other place in Japan to talk to Mikey? Yeah, I don't know if like if the Philippines is a great place for motorbike enthusiasts. Um, I don't know much about it. Uh, yeah, I figured you know go to another area of Japan to pick up the bike part. But I don't know. Maybe the Philippines just sounds more exotic. Even though, what is it? Mikey's brother. I don't know how old. I think his name's Shinichiro. Like how old he would have been to even secure this bike part. 
but I would figure... Or pay to have it shipped to another right. country. I would figure he'd still be in middle school if he was running a gang of delinquents that inspired Mikey to form uh, Toman, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like the whole Philippines thing could have easily been written out, unless it plays a bigger role in the manga. Maybe they just didn't have the time to flesh out in the anime. But it was still cool, the fact that he went to the Philippines. Um, and then Naoto shoots Mikey in the head, uh, and we know this because we see his head fly to the side, and then he's got blood on his head. And then I'm wondering, how can Mikey speak, let alone still be alive, with a bullet to the head? Someone explain this to me. He's still talking, and he's got a bullet to the brain. I mean, I guess it's it's a it's still a fatal wound, but not as fatal to allow him to speak. Uh, but I think just outside of that, him revealing that he had left the safety on and never intended to kill Takemichi, that speaks volumes about what he thinks of Takemichi as a person compared to you know everyone else that in Toman that he ended up killing uh, because he knew like. He had violent tendencies, and they also, in a way, were corrupted by the violent tendencies of the Toman gang, especially because they showed that scene where Dragon and, was it Chifuyu? Or no, Mitsuya vowed to stay on with Toman, but advised Mikey to leave Takemichi out of it. Because that shows that Mikey respects Takemichi's decision, and shows that Mikey respects Takamichi as a person who still wanted to see the good in people. And, you know, I don't think they explained why Takamichi left Toman, but it shows that, you know, Takem if Takamichi had stayed on, it would have kept Mikey in check in a way. Um, and I also like that Takamichi wasn't the one to deliver the last, or like the killing shot, because it kind of keeps Takamichi's quote unquote innocence in check by being the person who wants to save everyone for this greater good. And in the final episode, episode 13, When It Rains, It Pours, Takemichi time travels to 2006 with the intention of taking over as top dog of Toman, while Kisaki takes his talents to some tyrannic Tenjiku turncoats. The Yokohama-based gang spends their dog day afternoon wailing on members of Toman, culminating in another fateful meeting between the crybaby captain and the big bespectacled baddie, who seemingly reveals that he too has a copy of Back to the Future with clairvoyant knowledge of what he calls the Kanto incident. And I Kanto believe we have to wait and see what happens next. So you called it. You, um, when we were watching these final episodes, you said something about like, oh, they're probably just going to try to bring Kisaki back into Toma. And that's mm -hmm. kind of that's kind of the way they're going because they're saying like, like Mikey needs Kisaki as the darkness, or to balance out the darkness or whatever the fuck <laughs> yeah, it was. So now I'm thinking, of, now I'm thinking of Star Wars. I knew you were gonna say that. I knew it. <laughs> Kisaki represents the dark side. There you go, everybody. But then Takamichi <laughs> represents the light side. So you need both of them to counter each other. And so to keep Mikey stable, <laughs> right? And that's what will keep Mikey in check if Kisaki and Takemichi both end up in Toman. I don't know if that's how it's going to play out. Obviously, we haven't read the manga, but yeah, I just had that Star Wars epiphany now. I mean, I'm glad Kisaki's back in some way, shape, or form. I, I still think he's an interesting villain, and he's been the main villain of the show so far. Um, so I was worried that he was just going to disappear because they said, like, even Kisaki died in the 
um, the most recent timeline. So yeah, it's nice to have him back. But are they implying that Kisaki is also from the future? Because when he said, let the Kanto incident begin, it kind of like transitioned to this this um, future Kisaki with the gun type thing, like to kind of flash that image. And I don't know what they're alluding to. The only thing I can think of is Takemichi's like, oh shit, are you also from the future? That's what I thought. Because yeah, why would he say the Kanto incident begins? That just implies that he knows this point in time. And why would Takemichi look at Kisaki and then have a vision of future Kisaki? Because Kisaki also says when they see each other in this moment, he says, hey there, hero, which is the exact same thing that he calls Takemichi right before he shoots him in the season one finale. Unless he's calling him... So I thought at first, like, oh, he's calling him hero to allude to the fact that he's from the future because up until this point, there's never been, like, a real reference between Kisaki and Takemichi about Takemichi being hero. Mm -hmm. But then I'm thinking, well, no, there's that flashback to when Takemichi and Hina first met each other and he was dressed like a hero. So maybe that's what he's referring to. So I'm not entirely sure if they're alluding to Kisaki being of the mindset from the present, but... But Taka- I'm sorry, from the future, but maybe. But Takamichi would have never known Kisaki would have called him a hero at that point because they never really had a relationship even in this point. Even though they team up, we don't see any instance of Kisaki looking up to Takamichi and calling him a hero. But maybe he's just saying it as like, hey, hero, because like, I don't know, because that first time Kisaki ever saw Takamichi. Yeah. I don't I know. Think the implication is stronger that... This is a Kisaki who is also traveling back from the future. I hope so. That's fucking interesting. That's cool to know in the final moments of the show, like, oh shit, they're all along. There was somebody else who can tra- time travel. And like, how does Kisaki do it? Who does he shake hands with? Or like, is there some other trigger that gets him <laughs> to the ba- the past? Like, I want to know more about that. That's really, really cool. Yeah, because that just opens up the door. Like, Naoto can't be the only one who has this exclusive power. Like, there might be some... I don't know. Is it Hanma? Does he shake Hanma's hand? And that's what triggers him to to travel back to the past? Who knows? But that leads us to our final thoughts for Tokyo Revengers Season 2. So, in this Christmas showdown, how many seasons beatings out of 10 would you give this season? I gave it a 7.5 out of 10. I thought it was a solid season, despite not knowing what to expect because there was no talk about it. Um, I thought that it had a lot of great tie-ins, as I mentioned before, with season one. It had a lot of good plot twists that were still very interesting without feeling bogged down. Um, the animation was solid all around. Like It wasn't anything like stellar, but it was solid. It was reliable, which we didn't get from season one. Um, and I don't know. I just thought the, the story was really interesting. It did feel kind of like a side story, as you explained earlier, because the whole Sheba family incident is wrapped up and then we move on. But that's kind of the point. It's like Takemichi has to tackle each of these plot lines or each of these incidents in the past in order to change the future. So of course, they're not going to be like this long ongoing thing. He's resolved it. Now it's on to the next thing. So I thought it was still a really good uh, issue for him to tackle, even if it resolved in a way too convenient manner and too quickly. At least it was, you know, an interesting journey with um, some really heavy themes around it. Um, I still think that season two is lacking 
the power that season one had. And I mean that around like just the whole Hina thing, um, how impactful certain moments were in season one, like Baji's death hit hard, Hina's death hit hard. Um, Takimi- like watching Takemichi go through this journey in the beginning was really cool because he was just trying to figure out what the fuck was going on. But I don't feel like we had any hard hitting moments from the season. Like, I don't know. Did you feel like there was anything that that hit you the way that Hina's death hit you in season one or hit you the way that Hina's reveal um, in season one that that Takemichi was the one that broke up with her? Like how that hit so hard? Like that was like a wow moment for me. But I didn't get any real big wow moments here, except for the end where maybe Kisaki's from the future. Yeah, I think I was going to say that was the only thing that was like, whoa this opens up a whole can of worms yeah so that's why i'd give it a 7.5 out of 10 versus maybe like closer to an 8 um but i still think it was good 7 is always solid so 7.5 means it's just a bit above being you know a solid season and i'm excited to see where season three goes if there is a season three so that's a a plus as well but what about you yeah thinking back to season one i gave that an eight and a half out of ten but for season two, I would give it a slightly lower score, but just half a point off. I would give season two an eight out of 10. I still think it was a solid quote unquote Christmas story that continues to build up and reshape the lore of the Tokyo Manji gang, demonstrating with the Shiba family drama that bonds are sometimes stronger than blood. And through that theme, you see more of the essence that makes Toman that yes, it is a street gang first and foremost, but one that welcomes members from all walks of life, whether positive or negative, as seen through Hakai's and Mitsuya's stories, even if Hakai's is not entirely fleshed out in the 13-episode run. But this gang just comes together as an escape or an outlet to enjoy themselves whilst sticking firm to honorable, honorable principles, above all being there for each other, or as Mitsuya said earlier, we're all weak, but that's why we have friends. And this is demonstrated time and again through Takemichi's perseverance and the inspiration he provides to Hakai in this season. And speaking of characters, Takemichi is ever the crybaby hero who still manages to pull strings and changing the future. But at least this time around, he carries a lot more confidence in himself, in himself instead of wallowing in his ineptitude every other scene. And while Taiju felt close to being a one-note antagonist, I think the abusive dynamic you feel between him, Yuzuha, Yuzuha, and Hakai is eerily strong, making you root even harder for the younger siblings to come out of this situation unscathed. Unfortunately, the regular Toman characters kind of play second fiddle to the story, and with Mikey appearing in the climax of the showdown, he's shown to be a little too OP with closing it out, but their absence wasn't too excessive to detract me from the family feud. Lastly, I love how the time-traveling ability has been greatly expanded upon in this season with Chifuyu being aware of its existence and the hint at the end that Kisaki has somehow tapped into the phenomenon as well. So this opens up questions like, will this become a significant factor in the presumed final arc of the Tokyo Revengers anime with Takemichi and Kisaki coming to a head in what kind of future they want to forge for Toman? Or will this have any sort of sway over Mikey, whose deteriorating psyche is directly connected to the quote-unquote favorable outcomes that Takemichi has created for Toman? So now it's no longer just about saving Hina, which I still think is 
should be at the forefront of Takamichi's mind, but also learning to save Mikey from himself, as I mentioned in the OP analysis. So in any case, even though manga readers have hinted that the finale may not meet everyone's expectations, I still can't wait for Takamichi to make one final return in The Revengers. And I guess we'll wait and see if there is confirmation. I would be surprised if we didn't get a season three um, or some sort of finale here. Oh, wait, hang on. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Did we? I'm looking right now at Mal. Maybe I maybe I missed this in our chaos. Um, yeah, actually, they did confirm it. So it is confirmed. Okay. Third season of Tokyo Revengers will air uh, unknown yet. <laughs> so <laughs> at least we have confirmation. We apologize. Mm-hmm. I apologize. Um, I think I overlooked that, that detail, but Again, I do see it here. I'm not surprised because... It says here on Wikipedia that the manga's original run ended in November of 2022. So the story's over. We're just waiting for it to be adapted in anime form. And this has got to be the final season because there was that that card that came up that said, like, this starts the final and most, like, difficult, you know, uh, situation or whatever for, for Tolman. Which reminded me of, I think My Hero had done something similar. Yep. Season <laughs> six. <laughs> it's like we're... Were they the inspiration for this? But yeah, I guess in a way that makes it more hype to know that there is there is a, a final destination to all of this and that it's not going to be dragged on for like six seasons, even though that's what happened with my <laughs> Well, you guys know that we will review it when it comes out and when it finishes airing, and we'll see if it sucks the way that manga readers <laughs> foretold. Um, but until then, thank you guys, as always, for listening. We appreciate you so, so much. Subscribe to Strictly Anime on your favorite podcast service. Join our Discord to chat with us. Follow us on Instagram at The Strictly Series, on Twitter at Strictly Series, and check out our website, thestrictlyseries.com. If you'd like to support the show, then head over to Patreon dot com slash strictly series and tune into strictly jojo our podcast dedicated to jojo's bizarre adventure all links are in the description thank you so much for listening and as always stay safe stay healthy stay weeb